From socialservice.sg, I'm Jing Yao. The last time we discussed mental health on this platform was in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. With former nominated member of parliament, Anthea Ong, we examined the levels of awareness, acceptance, and action. Today, with Shirak Agarwal, co-founder of Talk Your Heart Out, we focus on mental health at the workplace. In addition, we discuss the state of professional services and the structural, policy, and cultural changes for the future. Talk Your Heart Out is an online counseling platform that aims to provide services that are private, convenient, and of high quality. So you spent some time in Australia and I've spent some time in the United States. And because of that, I thought we'd start with a discussion of how mental health is discussed, right? So what was your experience in Australia and how does the language used around mental health differ in Singapore compared to what you've seen and what you've seen and experienced in Australia? Yeah, thanks for that. So I guess, first of all, I felt that there was a recognition that like your physical health, you know, mental health could encompass a whole range of issues from mild anxiety or depression to post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD or obsessive compulsive disorder, also known as OCD. And in my experience, phrases like uh, don't be OCD or statements like, you know, I could kill myself were not just bandied about as casually as they are sometimes here in Singapore. Because some such comments, you know, actually end up trivializing the experience of someone who feels all of those things. But more than the language itself, I thought the tone used to discuss mental health was very different in Australia. Mental health wasn't spoken about in hushed tones, as it is sometimes here. In fact, I remember once a colleague shared with me that her father had passed away recently and that she was seeing a therapist you know, to deal with her grief and the impact it had on her relationship and the rest of her family. And another time, a colleague said to me, and he called me up and said uh, he had to take a day off just for his mental health and asked if I could cover for him. And I found such conversations just to be so refreshing. It made me feel like I too could be open and honest about how I felt and raise any mental health issues at work without being judged. Mm -hmm. And I also add from, from my end in the sense of me only kind of doing therapy after coming to the US. So that's also quite refreshing from my perspective. And the reason why I asked and extrapolating from your experiences and observations, which, you know, both of our experiences are not necessarily representative. What does it then mean to destigmatize de and normalize the discourse surrounding mental health, especially in Singapore? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And we must take a step back and, you know, really understand that to destigmatize mental health, everyone must first be convinced that mental health issues are real. And it may sound very obvious to you and me, but I can tell you there are many people out there who believe that most mental health issues people face are either a sign of quote-unquote weakness or a flaw that you have to overcome or worse, that you know, you're just overthinking it and just need to relax and that it was all in your mind or that you just have to you know, snap out of it. And uh, I mean, I've been guilty of saying some of those things in the past myself. So, you know, it, it's, it's a bit of a learning process. But to just contrast it with physical health. So, for instance, if you sprain your ankle, as I have done many times, you know, playing futsal, many people would use the RICE method to deal with the injury, you know, so rest, ice, compress, and elevate uh, the ankle to, to allow it to heal. You don't just try to shake it off <laughs> and continue playing. 
So it should be no different when it comes to mental health. So mental health issues are, are, are no different from you know, physical ailments with real consequences if not dealt with. And I think that's the first step to normalizing the discourse. Also, there needs to be a recognition that there's nothing inherently different in people who suffer from mental health issues. They can, g- just, they can be just as functional, productive, and interesting members of society as anyone else. You know, they just have a health issue that they either need to resolve or manage and learn to live with. It's, it's really no different from a physical ailment, injury, disease, or disability. And perhaps it's worth also sharing at this point how the World Health Organization, or WHO, defines health, which it says is, and I quote, a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. So it is actually quite all-encompassing, which includes your physical, mental, and social well-being. And that's how we should be viewing uh, health and mental health in particular. Yeah, and that's really helpful because I think, as you mentioned, there still needs to be a lot of improvement and progress, but there are some signs of, of individuals in Singapore, Singaporeans taking a little bit, taking mental health more seriously, right? And I think increasingly many of us are not just interested in, you know, ground initiators, but also in advocating for more structural policy or cultural changes, right? So for instance, for me, maybe informed by my personal experience in the US, I've always thought, you know, increasing the accessibility and affordability of professional services, really going beyond, while well-intentioned, going beyond the ad hoc initiatives of peer support should be a much greater priority. So on that note, how would you evaluate the state of you know, professional services, professional mental health services in Singapore? Yeah, so first, I totally agree. Right? There should be a greater focus on increasing the accessibility, affordability, and if I may add, quality of professional services when it comes to mental health support in Singapore. I think given the lack of regulations here, the quality of therapy can vary quite a bit, actually. There's no minimum qualification required or registration process before you can call yourself a psychologist or a counselor here. So at Talk Your Heart Out, we recognize, uh, we actually require a minimum of a master's degree along with relevant experience, amongst other things, before we, we get a counselor or a psychologist to join us. But such requirements are you know, entirely dependent on each service provider currently and are not standardized. In fact, uh, as you may well know, Anthea Ong's SG Mental Health Matters Survey done last year, found that one in three, um, I think it was 131 out of 395 respondents, expressed a concern about the quality of mental health care in Singapore. And we also hear similar stories from our clients who have had some pretty bad experiences elsewhere, including in the public sector and, and in schools. So for example, one client told us you know, how he saw uh, a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist just uh, dismissed his issues is not being real or serious enough and actually chided him for seeking help. Can you imagine the impact of that experience on someone already in a vulnerable state? It scarred him and he only came to us after a long break. I think it was a year or so. And initially was quite nervous about seeing someone else given his past experience. So the good news is that, you know, the government recently did announce it will establish a national mental health competency training framework to align and standardized training curricula on mental health in the community. So hopefully this and other initiatives uh, and policy changes uh, will go some way to improve the quality of support or mental health support available. In terms of um, other issues that um, 
that you face in Singapore. One is, you know, wait times of, you know, sometimes more than a month to see a counselor uh, if you go to the public sector. And, and many people have a fear that, you know, your conversations, if you go into the public sector, your conversations are not private and confidential and can go back to your employer if you're in a school, to your teacher or your, or your parent. Meanwhile, the private sector has its own challenges, you know, primarily being that, you know, uh, they can be prohibitively expensive for people to seek help. Two points. First, former NMP Anthea Ong gathered close to 400 participants in preparation for the budget 2020 debates. Focusing on mental health care and mental well-being, the SG Mental Health Matters community, which was referenced, also has an online platform with links and resources. It can be assessed at sgmentalhealthmatters.com. That's sgmentalhealthmatters.com. Second, the National Mental Health Competency Training Framework was announced during the debate for the Ministry of Health's budget earlier this month. That the COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted the importance of tackling mental health issues was emphasized. Yeah, and so it, you, you mentioned um, quality, um, you know, some form of regulation, also talk to, talking and, and finishing up with uh, references to accessibility and affordability, right? So making sure that it's not prohibitively expensive and making sure you don't have to wait too long to see um, someone, right? So are there other, you know, what other structural policy or cultural changes should we be thinking about? Yeah, I think when it comes to the workplace in particular, uh, a good place to start is actually for employers to do something quite simple, which is to remove the requirement for a medical certificate or an MC when one is feeling unwell, uh, which includes struggling with one's mental health. And, um, you know, in, in a recent survey we did uh, with 202 participants in collaboration with uh, Singapore-based crowdsourcing platform OP. We found a vast divergence between the reported mental health needs of those who took the survey and the support provided by their employers. And one of the examples was around uh, the requirement for MC. So for instance, about 41% of the respondents indicated that they are unable to take sick leave at their work, you know, if they're stressed, anxious, or otherwise experiencing low moods without requiring a medical certificate. And People must understand it's not always feasible for someone experiencing mental health issues to seek an MC just so that they can take time off work. And also requiring submission of an MC as a proof of illness indicates a lack of trust on the part of the employer and could signal a culture that you know is less inclusive, excessively focused on productivity, and even a bit punitive. And this is not a new idea. You know, the need for requiring an MC was also questioned by nominated member of parliament, Irene Quay, back in 2018. And she pointed out that the, you know, the risk of abuse was low and outweighed the benefits, uh, were outweighed by the benefits, rather. Uh, and, and, you know, indeed, it was always possible to fake an illness to obtain an MC. And, and this was a cost to the employer, too. And, and, and Ms. Quay actually encouraged employers to allow employees to take up to three days of non-consecutive sick leave each year without submitting MCs to boost morale. And, uh, you know, in fact, in my current workplace, in, in my day job, I, I don't have to submit a, uh, an MC when I'm sick. And, and it does build trust between me and my employer. And it was the same in, in Australia. I never had to submit an MC uh, when I was working there to my, to my employer. But, you know, our survey and other commentary pieces on the topic since the NMP brought up the issue in, in Parliament suggest that we have not quite yet shifted the needle on this. 
so I think even before we talk about you know providing subsidized therapy through employee assistance programs or insurance coverage, we need a fundamental shift in our mindset towards mental health. Fundamentally, people must recognize that it is up to each individual to determine for themselves if they are healthy or not, be it mentally, physically, or even socially, and not to be second-guessed by their family, friends, or, or employers. I want to ask you something about EAP, which I'll come to later, but you mentioned the survey that was commissioned by Talk Your Heart Out, the 202 participants. You recently ran an online survey on mental health at the workplace. So yes, it, is, it might be the case that the sample cannot be generalized to the wider population. You do, you did find that 70% of respondents knew someone at the workplace who would benefit from mental health support. However, this is the kicker, right? That close to 60% were worried that talking about mental health at the workplace or at work compromised their career progression. So how do we manage the problem? Like knowing that the, someone would benefit but not being willing to talk about it at the workplace. Yeah, I think the survey results suggest that while people are able to recognize mental health issues in other people and the need to support them, they are also aware of the stigma associated with having mental health issues in society and the impact that it can have on their career or social standing. And, you know, stigma can be multifaceted and we really need to develop a deep understanding of its source before we can better address it. So, for example, you know, public stigma is perpetuated when people with mental illnesses are incorrectly labeled as, you know, dangerous, weak, strange, incompetent, blameworthy. And this, you know, leads to isolation and rejection of these individuals. So there was a study in 2021 by, by Mao Sheng Ran and, and his team looking into the impact of culture on stigma uh, in different societies. So they discuss various aspects of, of stigma or various, various things that can impact stigma. So one was, you know, collectivism and familism, which emphasize harmonious social relationships and solidarity and adherence to the norm. Other, another point they discuss is face concern, which is the individual's desire to maintain their social image, social values, and social capital. And the third one they, they, they discuss is religion and supernatural beliefs where people strongly believe that mental illnesses involve evil spirits, fate, punishment prompted by God, their ancestors, or uh, other dead souls. And in Singapore, I would say that you'd find elements of all three causes of public stigma, and it may even differ a little bit amongst the three main racial groups, but, but it's definitely there in some shape or form. So with public stigma, you often see an accompanying self-stigma or internalized stigma, which is the process in which a person with mental health absorbs the negative messages you put out or stereotypes about mental illness and comes to believe them and apply them to himself or herself. So the way that self-stigma also works is, and is obviously in the statistic you just quoted, is that the same people who may recognize or identify mental health issues in others would fail to see it in themselves because they don't want to be associated with the negative stereotypes or don't see the stereotypes applying to them. And if they do identify it in themselves, you know, they would ignore it or, you know, just sweep it under the carpet and not want to think about it because there's so much negativity kind of associated with, you know, having those issues. And what happens in turn is that they don't seek help in time. So the trouble with stigma, as you can see, is that it impedes help-seeking behavior. 
And what you want to do is you want to break that stigma where possible so that everyone gets the support they need and early. And in terms of managing this problem uh, of stigma at the workplace, I would say the companies have to become more empathetic and people-focused. And one great way for signaling to others that it is okay not to be okay is for those at the top, meaning the leaders of the organizations, the CEOs, the MDs, for them to discuss their own struggles openly, which gives permission to others to be able to do so as well. And you know, we've seen this recently with Mr. Piyush Gupta at DBS and Mr. Chen Kaifeng at EDB, you know, sharing their personal stories and struggles, uh, which really sets the tone. Another two points. First, there was a reference to a 2021 study by Mao Sheng Ran and his colleagues. The open access article is titled Stigma on Mental Illness and Cultural Factors in Pacific Rim Region, a Systematic Review. Second, you've heard us reference the EAP or the Employee Assistance Program, and you'll hear more in the next segment. EAP are services subsidized by companies and other organizations with the intent of improving employee productivity as well as mental well-being and wellness. Recently, the government has been urging more employers to provide EAP through the Tripartite Advisory on Mental Well-Being at Workplaces. And because we're talking about mental health at the workplace, and this is something you referenced just now, uh, what do we know about the take-up rate of the EAP or the Employee Assistance Program and how much of the expenses do we know are dedicated to mental health or mental well-being at the workplace? Yeah, so based on the same uh, Taiho OP survey that I mentioned earlier, we found that you know, only about 27% of the respondents indicated that they have access to employer-subsidized counselling services, you know, which is one of the things offered under EAP programs while 80% revealed uh, that you know, individuals would actually use such services if they were available to them. So the, the, the counseling services, you know, if they were available to them in a confidential manner, they, they would access them. And anecdotally as well, in, in our experience, we see the same thing, which is that businesses that have approached us to set up EAP services uh, recently were doing so for the first time and I did not have the experience of running such programs. We found that MNCs that do have some form of EAP services often do not provide services tailored to the region, which means that you're speaking with a therapist based somewhere in the US or Europe who may not appreciate the cultural differences or societal pressures that we face in this part of the world. Uh, we have also seen businesses looking for you know, band-aid solutions or one-off wellness webinars, which are quite popular now rather than really thinking about the workplace culture and the issues that their employees are facing, especially during these strange and stressful times amidst the pandemic. You know? But I have to say there is a big push for businesses to provide better mental health care support now at the workplace, including from the government. So for example, in, 2000, in November 2020, the tripartite partners you know, comprising the Ministry of Manpower, the National Trade Union Congress, and the Singapore National Employers Federation issued an advisory on mental well-being at workplaces. And the advisory set out recommendations for individuals, teams, and organizations, including establishing an employee assistance program with counseling services. And it also had other recommendations around adopting work from home arrangements and having a work-life harmony policy to provide clarity on after-hour work communications, for example. So things are definitely moving in the right direction. And, and that's great to know. I think that, the, I mean, the reason why I was so excited to speak to you was because 
you know, we talk about mental health in Singapore very generally, but sometimes in talking about the workplace, maybe because of the stigma and the statistics that um, talk your heart out and and the the survey has has, has review is that there's still a lot of um, apprehension around that and it's good to know that at least we are very much on the right track right and I wanted to on that note kind of end where we started in the sense of helping us understand personally what we can each each of us can kind of undertake right and so maybe at the final note help us understand the difference between psychiatrists psychologists and counselors and maybe use that chance to also share a little bit more about your work at talk your heart out sure so at talk your heart out. Uh, we basically connect clients with psychologists or counselors. It's a predominantly online, so people can access the service at a time that's convenient uh, from a place that is accessible to them and a cost more affordable to them. So we don't have any psychiatrists on our platform. Psychiatrists are basically medical doctors specializing in the diagnosis and treatment of mental health disorders, uh, and they can prescribe medication if necessary. Uh, so what we have on our platform are psychologists and counselors, uh, and they are both trained in providing talk therapy that would help a client improve their mental health and well-being. So in most situations, uh, which type of professional you consult with on our platform uh, is not critically important. Uh, this is because there's a considerable overlap among them with respect to the types of problems they help with and the approaches they use. So our psychologists and counselors are all competent to recognize and help with the more common mental health issues like, you know, mild to moderate forms of depression, anxiety, or any relationship problems or workplace issues that you're having. Having said that, there are some differences uh, between the type and level of support that will be provided depending on who you pick. Uh, this is because uh, they all have acquired different educational qualifications and specialize in different areas. But broadly speaking, the that the, the two roles uh, and they differ as follows. So for psychologists, uh, they have usually studied psychology at a master's level and are experts in human emotions, behavior, and mental processes. They use evidence-based strategies to diagnose and manage more serious mental health illnesses and disorders non-medicinally over the long term. Counselors are, on the other hand, highly skilled in applying integrative therapies to assist people in working through their personal and emotional issues. They usually help clients address specific problems. So if you'd like to talk about, you know, adjustment to a new job, coping with a loss, problem at a school, then a counselor may be more appropriate uh, for you to approach. Thank you very much. Thank you for walking us through the state of professional services and a state of mental health at the workplace and for exploring the structural policy and cultural changes that we hopefully will be able to institute and explore in the future in Singapore. It's been, I mean, I always like conversations where I learned a fair bit and I did learn a lot today. So thank you very much for your time and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. 